on this episode of China Unscripted. Got a dictator? Looking to overthrow them? Or him, let's be honest. We talk with a man who's been training activists to do just that. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And joining us today is Sergio Popovich, an expert in nonviolent resistance and leader of Canvas, the Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, as well as the author of Blueprint for Revolution. Thanks for joining us today, Sergio. Pleasure being with you and looking forward to talking to China Uncensored. Yeah. Well, so for the audience who might not be familiar with your background, why don't you give us like a little bit of a rundown of how you got started as a you know a young activist in Serbia? Uh, well, uh, hi, everybody. This is the story of me. To start with, uh, around the age of 18, I was playing a bass guitar in a rock band and studying biology and wasn't even interested in activism or politics. But when the bad guy named Slobodan Milosevic, also known as Butcher of Balkans, came to power in my country in late 80s, the things went upside down. We got a whole package of things uh, all together within just a few years, uh, beginning of few civil wars, large hyperinflation, uh, growing authoritarianism, lack of future. And uh, being a young person in such an environment leaves you with two choices to fight or to flee. A lot of the people in my generation, unfortunately, fled the country. We had one of the largest brain drains in 90s. Uh, but some of us uh, formed the student movement as early as 992. We started with students' protests, uh, 996, 97, after the Milosevic lost and stolen local elections. They spread nationwide. 1998, we formed a movement called Otpor, which is a Serbian word for resistance. And we grew from 11 people to 20,000 people in 2000, uh, namely having a great role in mobilizing young people, uh, doing pranks, doing campaigns, uh, challenging authority of the ruler, also helping a bit uh, with a... With a Serbian opposition getting united around these presidential elections. Long story short, um, movement was successful. Milosevic was defeated in election 2000 and then through nonviolent mass action persuaded to actually concede. He was sent to Hague uh, where he died during the trial for, for his war crimes. In Balkans, uh, some of us uh, left for politics. I've spent a few years in the government and the parliament in the first transitional Serbian government. I, I assume I wanted to see how the beast operates from the inside. Around 2003, we started getting invitations from movements across the globe, uh, looking into documentary named Bringing Down Dictator. People were eager to learn how they can build the movements, how they can challenge autocracies in their countries. And since 2003, we have this organization named Canvas, Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies, which deals with training and educating people across the globe how to effectively oppose uh, dictatorships, how to fight for human rights. Since recently, uh, it turned uh, more and more into environmental issues, anti-corruption issues, and we also do a few university courses. Well, yeah, so I, f I find it so interesting how your experiences, um, you, you, you hone them down into lessons that you can actually teach other activists around the world how to overthrow their authoritarian regimes. Uh, a lot of that is, is the focus of uh, your book, Blueprint for Revolution, which I highly recommend to anyone watching. 
But so walk us through it. Say, you know, we're we're activists in a hypothetical authoritarian state. How do we go about, uh, you know, from a, a conspiracy of three to overthrowing a dictator? Uh, well, first of all, uh, uh, this is this applies to a lot of social movements. There has been a lot of research done on it, but the way we did it was through our own experience and then building from experience into the lesson plan rather than vice versa. So this is more of the practitioner's wisdom than some kind of theoretical wisdom. Uh, later, we, we found that it is also supported by theory. So first of all, uh, let's let's do a little you know three minute crash course on how to build a movement for dummies. First of all, uh, the core group matters. It is important to start with a group of committed people, and uh, that group of committed people uh, has first to figure out where they go. So having a thing we call the vision of tomorrow, which is the alternative vision of society or the community, regardless of the scale, is very important. So it's not only us being anti-dictator, anti-this or anti-that. It is us trying to figure out if this wrong things are not there, how the society would look different. This vision, uh, which serves as a light at the end of the tunnel, is really important to keep movements focused on their path. Uh, step number two, map your journey. Uh, you need to take a look at the society you want to change. You need to identify constituencies. People power struggles rely on people. So who are the people you want on this journey? Who are the people you want to mobilize on the journey and what it takes for them to get interested in it? Uh, very often movements start with big, vague goals, things like democracy and human rights, and figure out that the real power in mobilization is more in the bread and butter issues. The price of fuel, the price of transportation, uh, the, the type of the air, we breed uh, corruption. So finding the way to connect the wider goal, the wider vision with the needs of the people you want to recruit uh, is the key in the second step. So you map the battlefield, but you also listen to the people. Step number three, understand that the real permanent changes are only institutional. So you need to look at the institutions which are upholding status quo and figure out how to target and sway these institutions. Uh, in some cases, it is a state institutions. In some cases, it is educational institutions. Uh, you need to map your pillars. We call these institutions pillars of support because they uphold the status quo and figure out how to deal with them. Uh, Three, you need to plan. You need to plan strategically. You need to plan tactically. There is a big misconception that a lot of this is spontaneous. The more you plan, the more careful you plan, the better the chances to uh, succeed. Uh, then, of course, you need to pick your tactics. And this is where the creativity and the humor and the wit and the power of the activism really comes in place. Uh, first of all, too often movements get involved in tactics before they start thinking strategy. And you can see it everywhere from, from uh, I don't know, protests in Burma to BLM. People get outraged with an event or with a situation and they get involved in the large protests. However, these protests tend to fail if they are not meticulously planned, is if there is not what we call the order of battle, which institution you engage with when. And this type of planning is foremost where we talk about the strategy or we talk about the tactics. Uh, one more thing uh, which really uh, relates to all of the movements, large and small, across the planet, very often you need to counter risks and fear and apathy and figure out how to address these, these blocking issues in your campaign. Uh, last but not the least importance, uh, it's uh, not only mobilization that matters, it's also organization. 
And I think the, the grand lesson from movements in the last 20 years is that you need to use these large waves of mobilization, whether installed by the organization, whether triggered by an event, into a long-lasting group of people that are connected among themselves, that share the goals, that share the plan, in other means, organization matter. That means you need to recruit people, train people, organize people, and, you know, one, once again, all over again. So taking a look into, into this kind of waves of mobilization, you, you would imagine the organization as a steps up to the second floor, the third floor, the fourth floor, because the organization is what keeps movement alive between two waves of mobilization. And very often we see movements mobilize peak large numbers and then wane. The question is, do you use this to really develop a network of people committed to the goal who work relentlessly until the next window of opportunity for mobilization appears? Last but not of least importance, you need to finish what you start. When you take a look at the, at the movements of nowadays, when you take a look at the scientific researches, uh, you will figure out amazing things. Seems that it is easier to build from the small group of people to the large wave of mobilizations and actually reach millions on the street than to really turn these millions into the victory. Tangible victories, uh, taking a look into five years after the major change, are more likely to fail than the mobilization phase. So once again, it's easier to ask the dictator than to follow it up with a democracy. And this is where you really need to think what will keep these people involved during the transition. How do you make this large human capital, this large amount of the non-political people being involved in a movement once turned into the people who are politically active afterwards? Also what uh, recent examples teaches us democracy needs to be upheld and maintained. The world's largest backlashes in democracies are actually coming from democracies, places like India or Brazil or Philippines or United States. Uh, If people abandon democracy, it won't live by itself. So keeping your government accountable, keeping citizens engaged is is a must for a healthy democracy, long-term speaking. Yeah, I remember something you said uh, at the Oslo Freedom Forum this year in Miami, that democracy is like love. You have to make it every day. <laughs> it is very much like love or, or, or if you want to be more, more cynical, like marriage. So the, <laughs> it's not game over when you get married. It's not game over when you get kids. This is where the, this is where the things really began. And sometimes these thing, uh, things are super pleasant, like sharing with your kids the joy of when they start swimming or when they start driving bike. Sometimes it's really painful when you want to, to make them brush their teeth, change, change their diapers or persuade them to go to sleep. But in any cases, democracy is very much also like parenthood. So yes, you made this amazing thing happen. You made a kid get to this world. You made democracy get born into this world, but it needs maintenance. And without the people maintaining democracy, democracy will only last that long. Well, I imagine, yeah, like like the idea of like overthrowing a dictator, changing society, especially for young people, that's got to be a little, you know, sexy in some ways. But when it comes to like, okay, we're in a democracy, now we have to sit in meetings and I have to listen to some jerk I don't like uh, argue with me. And then we have to compromise on things. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, you're so right. And I've, I also, that you mentioned very important thing, the cool of the things. And uh, very often people, for adult, they, they see the 
the trail of the things, they see the courage of the things. But a lot of people really join these movements because these things are cool. You know, when you live in a in a screwed up country, fighting for your future is cool. Outrunning police in the street, it's cool. Being a rogue specifically for a for a young person is cool. Being an outlaw is cool. I mean, everybody wants to be a James Dean. Even the generations who don't know who James Dean is want to be a James Dean. And, uh, and uh, you know, being a James Dean, and then one day the James Dean, James Dean win, and his normal is becoming new normal. And now you go back to your studies, you go back to your job, you go back to your arts, you go back to your music, you go back to your family. And now somebody expects you to sit in a meeting where we are, you know, discussing a new law on how we will make, uh, you know, offshore companies more accountable. And I can't imagine the more boring topic to to, to talk about for somebody who is 21 or 22. And uh, finding a way to get these people involved uh, in change, whether as a watchdogs to the new government, whether as a real part of this transition process, you have many, many examples where people really went to the government and to the parliament in their 20s and 30s. And some of these people really contribute to the change. But it's one thing, once again, uh, uh, you know, the smell of tear gas is really addictive and it's nice. Uh, but in the same time, looking into transition uh, uh, is kind of boring. One big thing that comes with the transition, uh, you don't have this large unification factor uh, because the bad guy is not there anymore. And having a bad guy somehow unifies people with different goals, with different interests, uh, because if we don't win, because if we don't survive, because if we don't hold each other's back, we are all doomed, regardless of our differences. Now, when this big threat factor is not there, we start noticing our differences. We start expressing our differences. We start arguing about our differences and immediately one of the most important principles of successful movement, the unity, is lost. And taking a look into this tricky thing called transition, taking a look at how we can improve transitions across the globe, also taking a look how world loses interest the moment the, the dictators step down. So this is really fun. You know, you have all of these international advisors and consultants and uh, aid organizations around the place when you have a crisis. The moment they think the crisis is over, they start looking the other way. And then immediately the new transitional body in places like Egypt and Sudan needs to figure it out themselves. Well, guess what? There are countries which won democracy, won freedom through the nonviolent struggle, but they didn't have the blessing of have any kind of democratic institutions in the past. So not like they can rebuild their democratic institutions because they are none. They need to build them from the scratch. Well, you know, is there a blueprint on how to help these people really get to the democracy without avoiding the very wrong idea that somehow you can just re-script something and you know you just come in with tanks and okay let's let's build democracy in afghanistan or in iraq american way this is not going to work and we we all learned the painful lessons how this is not going to work so taking a look into more into how you make these societies having their institutions helping them build institutions of their own without imposing your own ideas on them is kind of also a tricky job but it's also an international responsibility as we all witnessed autocracy is more or less like climate change uh, the fact that you are recycling in your home that you are saving energy in your home or in your 
your yard or in your little township or in your little country uh, wouldn't change the fact that somebody else uh, is is burning Amazon forest somewhere else and that the whole climate is going down. Very similar autocracies tend to spread. And unfortunately, we see them spreading in the last decade. Well, so it sounds like there are definitely many challenges for a movement, uh, both before uh, they overthrown their dictator and after. But before we kind of peel back into some of those things, uh, one thing I want to get out is that you always advocate, people think, people hear revolution and they think, oh, that must mean violent revolution. But you're, you're, you are supportive of nonviolent revolution. Why is that? Why is nonviolence the answer to overthrowing a often military-backed dictator? Well, I mean, the, 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 the reason why I personally do that is that the place where I was doing revolution was torn apart by civic wars. So very idea of, of wearing weapons and camouflage uniforms was not something affiliated with my generation. Uh, Nonviolent struggles tend to be more ethical than the violent struggle, but more important for this point, nonviolent struggle tend to be twice more effective than the violent struggle. And there is a wide scientific research uh, done by several scholars. I'll just mention Maria Stefan, Erika Chenowet, Kurt Schock, people that were looking into cases of nonviolent movements and violent movements, nonviolent movements with radical flanks like ANC in South Africa and see the different effectiveness of these movements. Uh, uh, first thing comes from the common sense. If you're challenging your opponent, you want to do it at the point where you are strong and your opponent is weak. Uh, challenging somebody like Assad on the field of violence, challenging Tatman Dao in Burma, the catastrophic mistake that the movement now is doing in Burma, is somehow having this idea that making a guerrilla army will out generals who were ruling country with a with a golden heel for, for 30 years. This is challenging Mike Tyson in the bo- boxing ring. You don't want to challenge your opponent where he's strong and you are weak. Uh, what about playing a chess with Mike Tyson? You're probably more likely to win. Uh, another one is uh, uh, from the very nature of movements. Uh, science, history, experience, guts teaches us that the people power movements are more powerful if they have more people. So this is just the common sense. So there is a direct scientific correlation between the number of the people participating in the movement and the capability of success. A larger portion of the society involves, larger the chances for success. But look at what guerrilla movements do to it. So start with thinking how many people you know that would be ready to camp in the woods, kill and die for what they believe, don't see their family for months, and have some kind of military training. One, two, three, four, five, if you live in a, in a city with a lot of military like I do, Colorado Springs, probably know six people like that. And uh, take a look at how many people you know that will do, you know, the human chain or hitting pots and pans from the window or putting stickers and take a look at your phone book and boo, here comes the half of the phone book. So taking a look at the recruitment base, the possibility to gain numbers, this is where the nonviolence really plays in. And then you take a look at how you lose numbers when you turn violent and, and start thinking out of your common sense and say, okay, there's this large nonviolent protest-like a festival thing where there is a music and cakes and pranks and and whatever balloons with a with a with a funky looking president of the United States, and of course I'm going there, 
and I'm bringing my wife and I'm bringing two of my young kids and everybody will have fun. So it's four of us from this household. Now take a look at a little bit more riskier level of things uh, where you have the demonstrations in Hong Kong where there will be a tear gas, there will be police. Okay, I'm going, but I'm leaving my family home because I don't want my five-year-old to get caught in a crossfire of, a, of a stones and a, and a tear gas. And then let's think about going to the place where bombs can fall or live rounds may be shot. I'm not going. So taking a look at the very common sense of why people wa wa will or won't participate, uh, this, makes, this makes the whole point. Well, but speaking of nonviolence, uh, we, we need to distinguish between the nonviolence, the philosophy, the ethics, uh, the, the life stance, and something we teach, which is called nonviolent discipline. Nonviolent discipline is a skill. And skills can be taught, skills can be learned. So in order to make your movement nonviolent, you need to teach it and preach it to your members. It needs to be the part of your vision, commitment. It needs to be both religion and ideology of the movement. Good if you have a religious background, good if you're coming from a Buddhism, uh, good if you have Gandhi, good if you have Martin Luther King, the man of God, the man of peace. But even if you don't, we not for didn't have that that uh, religious component at all, and many movements don't. Uh, you you preach it to the to the members uh, the way that it is somehow superior than the violence. And in a strategic planning, you're looking at the activities that are less likely to produce the violence. So less mass tactics of concentration where people can go nuts and police go to the to the live rounds. More small tactics of dispersion more hitting pots and pans, more boycotts, more tactics that are less likely to produce violence. Also thinking about how you deal with potentially violent group is a, is a very important thing. And uh, there are many uh, occasions where we have the violent groups. In Serbia, we have football fans, soccer fans in American language. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you call football this, this crazy game with people wear armor and throw funny looking ball with hands very logically to name it football yes so the the well the soccer fans yes yeah, so they hated president milosevic with their guts but their idea of protesting was fighting with police and so we ended from talking to them deterring them to participating into defending police from them so here is the police here we are police arrested 2.5 thousand of our members within 2000 uh, a year only and here we are making a human chain to defend the police that hates us from the soccer fans that supports us. That looks crazy. But this is how we were able to decrease the level of violence, maintain the participation, keep up with the, with the, with the uh, philosophy of the movement. But also it was a very powerful weapon towards the police. Because next time they're ordered to, to shoot tear gas at us, they're ordered to attack the people who were ready to defend them. And this is a big dilemma for them. And especially when you have the police pillar in the game where you're talking about the BLM or you're talking about the Hong Kong, it is really important how you communicate with them because this is where the rubber hit the road. You will meet these people next week on the street. So taking a look into this communication and understanding that the real way to turn pillars and institution is not by pushing, e.g. yelling, screaming, stoning, uh, uh, whatever, Molotov cocktailing them 
as opposed to giving them flowers and talking to them and defending them and asking a simple question, wouldn't you rather serve and protect law and order than serve or protect a little corrupted family on the top of this country? Because these people are still people. They're not machines. And behind these shields and buttons and helmets and uniforms, they are living people with families, with problems, uh, with cars to fix, with mortgages to pay. And they, they, their kids go to the same school as your kids. So taking a look into human side of the security forces also justifies the, the reasons for having nonviolent discipline because you can't threat, you can't uh, turn, you can't pull the people you threaten to kill. So if you threaten to kill them, it is very less likely that they are going to shift sides. If, however, you sympathize with them and use the sentence we often use in, in Serbia, uh, we are the, the victims of the same guys. You're wearing blue uniforms, we are wearing blue jeans, but we are, we are in this stupid situation where you are defending a ruling corrupted family and need to go to schools and arrest kids who wear the movement t-shirt. Wouldn't you rather go and chase uh, drug dealers? Of course you do. This is why you why you applied to be a police person. I can definitely see how that's a uh, like a, a kind of persuasive argument towards the police. But in your movement, when you guys started defending the police, did you have any internal backlash about that? Like within your movement about like, well, how can you defend these guys that we're fighting? Oh, it took eight years of evolution uh, between us and the police to really figure this out. Early 90s, 1992, 1993, at the beginnings of the student movement that was before Outpour, the normal reaction to the protesters when they see police was to do av, 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 which is mimicking this barking sound of a dog. Mm-hmm. The message was clear, you are no better than dogs to us because you are the dogs defending your evil boss and you're just the guardian dogs of the regime. Then after that, they would beat you with the appetite. Uh, and, and that makes all of the sense. So it took us eight years of understanding that the policeman, we didn't have a women at police force at the time, is just the man in the police uniform. And it took a lot of understanding and training people and really talking uh, to the police. What we did a lot was talking to the police and not only talking with them when a clash is inevitable and we have thousands on our sides and they have hundreds on their sides, you know, talking with them on a corner, talking with them uh, with the shop, finding a way to use the organization, go back to the first point. If you have organization on the ground, then you have people who live where the local police live. We need to learn about the police in order to sway police. It's not learning about us and thinking that it is us and them. It is having people in a place where police live. It's talking uh, to the local police. That outlines, once again, the importance of organization. So you really want to have a person in each neighborhood. You really want to have uh, three persons in each building. This is how this, this struggle streams. This is how these struggles get power to reach to the other side. And also, uh, philosophically, understanding that uh, what your opponent wants is a division in society. The way you maintain dictatorship, where you talk China, or you talk Hong Kong, or you talk Serbia, or you talk Venezuela, is constant us against them situation, where people are so divided among themselves that they wouldn't even start thinking about how they can collect garbage more effectively than they corrupt government can collect garbage. 
approach because once they define and once they find that they can do things together, then they become collective. And when become collective, then they become very dangerous. And, you know, taking a look at Orwell's 984 or taking a look into the Mao's China, you'll see how governments were desperately cutting this horizontal relationships between the people, ending up with, you know, kids reporting parents if they talk politics at home. This is kind of very scary vision of totalitarian regime. The real reason for this, dictatorships want you to look up and down. They don't want you to look left and right and see the people around you. Because if this horizontal relate, if this community power is unleashed, then your your opponent is in, in deep trouble. Well, I guess that goes back to your original point about how a movement needs to establish that their goal is not to kill the dictator. It's what kind of society they want to get. Because otherwise, if you're just talking about, all right, we got to kill the bad guys, you'll be stuck. First of all, the, the reason why, why, why we need vision is because the vision is this, you know, this is going to be the marathon. However large or small, these changes take time. And people power change, the, the, the regular people power movement lasts 2.5 years. So some of them lasted longer. Serbian movement lasted for nine years because we are slow learners. Some of them last for 20 years, completely unsuccessful places like Zimbabwe. They keep repeating the mistakes. But in any case, this is not a sprint. So this is not a blitzkrieg. Woo, let's bring people on the street. 15 days, goodbye. So because this is going to be the marathon, it's not really only important to know that there is a finish line after 42 kilometers or whatever is the length of the marathon, but also, you know, spreading your strength along the way, planning what you're doing along the way, rewarding yourself for each mile. And, you know, that's only possible if you know where you want to go, as opposed to just running from the lion, which is kind of comparative to the fact that we have this bad guy, we need to do something about it. Ooh, let's go to the street. Uh, Also, philosophically, the great book to read is called Rules for Radicals, written by Sol Alinsky. And he really gives you a model of how anger is a powerful mobilizer. And we see millions of people being triggered by the angle. The contemporary horizontal movements are almost mostly exclusively triggered by the anger. The thing is, anger without hope is a very destructive force per se. So we need to cope this mobilization, this angry point with the point where we see the solution and then connect these two dots with something Alinsky calls small victories. So small, tangible things that we can do along the way. A, to do the checkpoint, we are on the right path, this is our milestone. B, to boost the morale, people burn out. Activism is very demanding. That means you're not uh, living your life, but investing your life into something completely new. People lose it. People get tired. People get fed up, people get burned out. And uh, third, very important thing, the small victories gives you the chance to mobilize more people. So this burden of the activism is spread more equally among the members of the movement. You also talk a lot about the importance of humor in a movement. Um, I think one of the, the best examples of why this is important is, is a story you mentioned in, in your book about uh, pigs. In Serbia, do you want to kind of tell that story and explain? No, pigs, pigs are pigs are in Cuba. Pigs are in Cuba. Turkeys are in Serbia. 
Uh, use of animals is very often in this mm -hmm. dilemma actions. Uh, humor. Uh, so first of all, uh, uh, how the humor connects to the nonviolent struggle. And almost in any of these cases, even in the most totalitarian society, you have jokes about people in power. But this is not the type of humor I'm, I'm looking at. The type of humor we are looking at is more structured, and it's called loftivism. So what is loftivism is understanding the power of putting your opponent into dilemma situations. So it doesn't really start with humor. It starts with Gandhi. So when you take a look at Gandhi's salt march, this is the first historically reported dilemma actions. We did a large research. We found these dilemma actions uh, getting as early as, as 17th century, but people know salt march, so we talk about it a lot. So he picked a little thing that relates to everybody. He picked a widely held belief that people have the right to make their own salt if they can. He picked a very sensitive point of British colonialism in India, which is taxing people for salt produced in India, which is really bizarre and really exploiting. And then he says, I'm going to make salt. It also came with a very little risk bar because there was a fine, I know, 70 pounds and you go two weeks in jail if you do that. So it's, it's bearable. So he started this movement. He marched from 15 people to 40,000 people. He was a master of staging this media events. He made salt, but the thing is like the, op the opponent was between the rock and the hard place. If they arrest Gandhi, he walks out in two weeks as undoubtful national leader of the movement. So immediately they grant him the charisma of the leadership. If, however, they leave Gandhi make salt, then everybody will start making salt and that will make a damage on the colonial economy. So putting your opponent in this situation is the beginning. Adding a little bit of humor is where we get the loftivism. So in Serbia, we started with a painting Milosevic on a, on a petrol barrel, putting a little hole in a petrol barrel, uh, putting a baseball bat next to the petrol barrel. Well, it was not a baseball bat. It was just a baton. And then putting it in the main pedestrian district. So what happened is that you could go, it was a street theater type of thing. You can go to the to the barrel, you put a little coin in, like in a pinball game, then you take the baton and boom, you express your love for Mr. President by hitting the barrel. And of course, it's very loud, so it attracts people. And it's a shopping district, so there is a lot of people. So within five minutes, you have maybe 50 people waiting to, to, to express their love. And of course, we pulled back to the nearby cafe or the espresso and see, see what's going to happen. So people were having fun, the kids were around, they were kicking the bat with their little legs, everybody was having fun, but that was not the fun part. The fun part was when police arrived. So the fun part starts with you imagining you're a policeman, so you're trained to deal with the violent oppressors, and now you, you, you see this barrel. So you have the order to stop this, but there is nobody to be arrested. So you can't find us. We are nowhere like people who really put the prank on are not there. You can't arrest the downtown shoppers because when you bring them to the police stations, you charge them with what? He will say, okay, I found this bar on the street. I hit it. So what's the crime? And, uh, and of course, they, they did the most stupid thing. They arrested the bar. And of course, even then, there were people with cameras and it was taped. It ended up in a cover page of the Serbian newspaper. And then, then you turn the police into the punchline because they're actually arresting the barrel with the mutilated president's face. And fast forward to many other places. We are now looking into 
I, I just came book with with a friend, Sophia McLennan. It's called Pranksters versus Autocrats, where we recorded 40 of these actions. We are now up to 300 in our research. And you can go to Russia and take a look at the toy protests. You can go to the Belarus You can take a look at how when people were banned from the streets, immediately the red and white, the color of the revolution, appeared to be the light on a, on a Christmas trees. So now you have a police coming to the neighborhoods and bringing the Christmas lights down from the Christmas trees. So this is really funny. You can go to the potholes. The potholes are the major source of inspiration for activists globally. We have a cluster of 12 different ways people were creative about making potholes a political issue. From making a face of a mayor and a governor in Yekaterinburg, Russia, around the pothole, so the mouth become the pothole. So they they hired a street artist. These paintings look really nice. So what happens when you hit the pothole? You curse. This is automatic response. If you drive car, you know. And now we have a person to curse. And you know, uh, lovely as they are, the Russian authorities came in. They moved the graffiti, but they didn't fix the potholes, so that makes them even more looking silly. And then you can move all the way to to the Bulawayo, the second largest city in uh, in Zimbabwe, where potholes are the size of the pool. So people were planting trees in the potholes. In fact, you have cases in Brazil where people were releasing fish in the ponds made in the potholes. Uh, you go to the cases in the U.S. where people were celebrating the birthdays of the potholes because they're, they're there too long. This is the third birthday of this pothole, so they will come with a, with a birthday cake. So take a look into, if you are a local government, what are your options? Go fix potholes, grant me a victory, or don't fix potholes and be recorded as a mayor in history whose, uh, whose potholes are celebrating birthdays or holding fish or trees or whatever. So now taking a look into this, this is where the humor really comes with a full power. And humor comes with the three really amazing things. And two of them has nothing to do with social movements and have everything to do with us being humans. Uh, first of all, uh, humor is very powerful attractor. You always want to be around funny people. And this is our, uh, when, when you take a look at who is the most likable person you want to be around, it's never the richest or the most educated or the most beautiful. It is somebody who can always make you laugh. And that's the attraction, and attraction makes people join movements. So once again, a lot of people join movements because it's cool, and that increases numbers. Uh, second very important thing, humor breaks fear. You can't be afraid and energized by fun in the same time. And, you know, because laughter gives you endorphin, it is actually what people recommend you before you go to the surgery is, you know, having a prank, having a laugh. Look at the comedy because this relieves this fear, this, this kind of, of uh, uh, rigor in which, in which you get by being afraid. And then last but not least importance, putting your opponent between the rock and the hard place very often works. Because it's not only the prank, it is the follow-up of the prank. It's not only toy protests in Russia. It is how Putin really looks when somebody from Kremlin orders a chief of police in a small town to ban the toy protests. So now it's, it's like the reaction of your opponent which becomes the driver and the trigger for the next activity. And uh, the thing is the people in power 
are very often very sensitive to mocking. They just live in this crazy world in which they start imagining themselves as a superhuman by being on TV nonstop, being in newspapers nonstop, being on billboards nonstop. And if you poke them a little bit, they're very likely to do something stupid. And then you exploit this in your next prank. I mean, speaking of China uncensored, you know, Winnie Pooh was censored in China. This is one of the cases in the book, is the fact that after meetings of the Chinese leader, somebody found connection between how he looks and the Winnie Pooh, and people are start doing memes. Memes are very often the way to create a dilemma action. Next thing you know, you can't find Winnie Pooh in China. Why? Because they find it offensive. Now, it's not about the memes that were probably seen by, by tens of thousands of people, and they may have some laugh. It is about the fact that you express this level of paranoia and, and wh wh whatever, how you, how you call this, uh, uh, r ridiculous being in love with, with, with yourself and saying, no, 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 I don't want to be compared with a Vinipo. That tells a lot about yourself. Yeah. Can you talk about how memes are a good form of di uh, causing dilemma action? Oh, memes are everywhere. And uh, the, the one thing with memes is that they spread fast. They are very often made by, a, by a common people. So it's not something produced by the movement leadership. Memes happen spontaneously. And uh, very often in an in a internet world, memes attract a lot of attention, a lot of clicks. They need a short attention spans. And wherever you go, especially in the last five or six years, uh, you have these this cases where memes are used to, to kind of uh, tell a powerful story or send a, send a marvelous message. We, we have cluster of maybe 20, 30 memes we are looking at from across the globe. And uh, once again, the meme itself is a, is a very limited tactic, limited to a number of the people that see it online. When, when your opponents start reacting to the meme, it is the reaction that really makes it big. You know, it is not about people seeing the Hunger Games in Thailand and then using this uh, this uh, uh, three three finger salute as a salute to freedom. It is the government seeing that people are using three finger salute for freedom and then banning the Hunger Games in Thailand. This is when it becomes ridiculous. So it's it's like there is a little thing that you do. It pokes your opponent, whether this is a meme or this is a gesture. And then the moment they take it from there, they go ballistic. They go with kinetic force over something, and then you figure out that you know they they ban the cartoon characters or they ban the pop culture or they ban this kind of stuff. And this is where everybody stops talk starts talking about it. And the funny thing, this is why we call this political jujitsu. So you're not using your own power. You're using the power of your opponent to bring it back against him. I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we've been following this, you know, Hong Kong protests for a long time. And there was the 2014 umbrella movement. And we, you know, went there to sort of observe that. And then we were back in 2019 as things really heated up. But now, of course, it looks like things are not going well for the Hong Kong protesters. But it would be good to get your perspective on what you think strategically is going on with this movement, where they've had success, where they haven't had success. Well, I'll start with the 2014. I think uh, uh, it was amazing. It was great. It was probably the best planned uprising that I've ever seen. And, and I, I was lucky to get across the manual that they were using before 
the uprising started. So really training your people early, training them to be nonviolent, training them uh, how to behave in a certain situations, training them how to be solidar with each other. That helps. And I think that amazing success and the fact that that at least two large successes came out of the two, 2014 one, <laughs> we were we became uh, hopefully aware of the fact that majority of the people in Hong Kong want more independence and want to live in real democracy as opposed as rubber stamp democracy. Second, uh, we became painfully aware that motherland China will use whatever tool they have in their toolbox to suppress this. And I think 2019, well, the big failure of 2014 was occupation. Sticking to large tactic of concentration with no clear answer, what will we do if our opponent ignores us and our numbers go down? Occupation is a typical concentration tactic that works only in the short terms of time. So this, these type of tactics should be used to put the pressure on a limited number of the people or the institutions over the limited amount of time. Why? Because we are they're very difficult to maintain. They're very costly. And the fact that we have all of this occupation attempt, including the movement in US named Occupy Wall Street, they are starting from a big misconception of social media and Arab Spring. Because people have seen other people occupying symbolic public places in Cairo, for example, they thought all we need to do is come on a square, sit there for 14 days, and immediately M&M chocolates will start falling from the sky. And then the Occupy repeated this mistake, naming the movement after the tactic. So that this is how this, this goes very bizarre. And then the occupation in Hong Kong, without thinking, okay, we have all these local businesses supporting us now. What will happen after 15 days? Their shops are closed. 20 days. They're losing money. So taking a look into consequences of your tactics and discussing what may go wrong before you get engaged into it is a very important strategic planning component. And of course, uh, occupations tend to lose numbers. Then more radical people stay. More radical people staying after 14 or 15 days exhausted, creates more opportunity for them to get engaged with the police. And then, you know, 2014 was the first time in history that the police and the protesters clashed in, in Hong Kong. It wasn't very dramatic in, uh, in the terms of the world protesting. Probably more people get killed weekly uh, or injured in a place like Burma, but it was historic for, uh, for Hong Kong. Now, between two waves, there was a learning curve. There was a learning curve on the side of protesters that also challenged institutions, made amazing inroads on the local elections, very clever, very clever, very, very strategically. And then on the side of the opponent, mainland China really decided that they don't want to leave this thing that they will use uh, to impose stuff. Then also in a planning thing, the movement really planned for the next window of opportunity that comes with the extradition law. So, you know, the movements are planning for windows. They don't wait for triggers. They, they plan for triggers to play for them. This is how the clever movements do. And also 2019 was also very large, some amazing creative tactics from having human chain uh, uh, be the war idea of how you appear and disappear. We call this hit and run. This, when you limit the number of the people in the streets to the time shorter 
then it takes to the police to arrive. It wasn't, however, invented in Hong Kong. Other movements were, were doing it. The first time we recorded it was in Maldives in 2006, because this is the island nation. So they would do a rally of 40 minutes because it takes police motorboat one hour to arrive from Male. And then they will dissolve and disappear to the next island and the police is coming to the island where there are no people who are protesting. So these things are really innovative and really good. What they, what they didn't figure out, and also this, this building a very powerful real-world community from the social media. So 2014, they were using social media. 2019, they created a real community. And by the way, that community was that strong that in the early stages of COVID, it was more effective in protecting Hong Kongers from COVID than the LAMS government was. So taking a look into how this, this, it is one thing to use social media to inform people and get people connected. It is yet another level of achievement to make it into the real community, not just online community. I think these were tremendously successful and underreported achievements, if you want, of this movements. However, the radical flank, the radical flank, the fact that they had a number of the people ready to engage with the police, the fact that they were reluctant or incapable to limit uh, this interaction, that uh, uh, they they were, that that also comes from the nature of the movement. So it's very different from Otpor. And that, that plays uh, 999 playbook, 2019, 20 years brought a, a lot of differences between how the movements were structured. And yes, being decentralized and being online was a must for Hong Kongers because they are facing the powerful opponent that will go after leaders and jail them and in, incapacitate them to participate in the movement. But in the same time, in the same time, uh, the decision-making process is very diffuse, and it's very difficult to exercise the orders and the decision if you rely only on networks and not on the organization. So within the Otpur movement, it was a conscious decision to deal with the radical flank. It was a conscious decision brought by a number of people namely 11 of them in Belgrade and 60, 70 of them representing local branches. This is how the Otpor was making its decisions. It had two levels of, of deciding the thing. And then our collective decision was, we don't want soccer fans in our events. We don't want them to have our flags. We'll try to talk them out from them. If they appear, we will defend police. So that was a conscious decision made by movement leaders, however you name them whatever, decision-makers. Now, in Hong Kong, you have a very difficult structure of, of, of deciding, and because the new movements are very horizontal, and these horizontal structures are coming with some good things, they're difficult to oppress, some even better things, the level of ownership of the movement of the individuals is far higher than if you have a hierarchical structure with leadership, but it comes with some bad things. If shit hits the fan and there is a painful decision to be made, which is how to deal with our own flank that is throwing Molotovs to the police. Who is to bring this decision? How do we exercise this decision? And, you know, speaking to the people from this horizontal movement, you get to this point over and over. It works great while you are on the offense. The moment you're witnessing the divisive problem within your organization, horizontality just can't get you across the finish line. 
you need somebody to lead, you need somebody to take responsibility, and then you need somebody to exercise this decision. So I think incapability to deal with a, with this more radical flank actually gave ammunition and, and uh, where the PR ammunition or opportunity to really oppress people on the ground to the police of Hong Kong and mainland China. And I think that was the big failure. Like the big failure of 2014 was sticking to occupation for too long and making it a mantra without thinking about the consequences. Total horizontality, insisting on equality and uh, incapability to deal with the radical flank were probably the most painful mistakes of 2019. But it also come with a, with a big revelation. Uh, it's not even rubber stamp democracy anymore in Hong Kong. So mainland China had to remove the, you know, this velvet gloves from the Iron Fist. And there is a large trend. There will be a, next week, there will be a big research in Atlantic magazine done by Anne Applebaum, how more and more countries, because unfortunately, because they feel more confident in their authoritarianism, because they are less challenged by international community or because they are a lot more skilled in, in censorship and propaganda, they are removing the developed gloves. You've seen more and more, we call this Maduro effect. So this is, you have a Venezuela, the country with natural human resources uh, uh, that can be probably among the top 10 countries in the world. I mean, they have more oil than Libya. In the same time, we are talking about a country with 3 million refugees, rampant hyperinflation, actually on the lowest 10 countries there. So if you are an elite ready to risk the to become a real failed state, it's called the Maduro effect, and then you're ready to use military or whatever against your own population only to stay in power, then we are looking into a very nasty game in which people will leave, country will deteriorate either to tatters or a civil war like Libya or Syria. And then the same time, in the same time, but you will be still in power. That's the only thing that matters. And, you know, it's like we are looking more and more of this, of this uh, uh, authoritarian regimes trying to play nicely, turning into authoritarian regimes that are not even pretending to play nicely. And there will be more of it uh, uh, to, the, to the pity of the people around the globe. And there will be more of it until we all collectively gather in condemnation of this and supporting democracy across the globe. Well, so I want to go back to Hong Kong uh, because in 2020, the Chinese Communist Party forced the, the government to pass the national security law, which basically effectively ended the, the 2019, let's call it the 2019 protests. What's happening in Hong Kong now? And is there any hope for them to build a new movement? Or is it just like they lost it's over, the Communist Party won, game over. Well, uh, this is very hard and difficult thing to predict. From my experience, wherever you have 60 or 70% of the population that support one vision of tomorrow, and you have 20 or 30% of the population that supports status quo or a very different group of tomorrow, it's never game over. So it's like just to take a look into 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 what we are talking about here. Uh, it it will very much depend on the capability of the movement to regroup, set up a new wave of goals, and and post a new wave of challenges, as opposed to the calculation coming from Beijing, because this is where the real decision is made. I don't I don't really see see it made in a in a in a government of Hong Kong. 
uh, how to cope with this. And, you know, it's like, and unfortunately or fortunately, you can take a look at this as a game of the game of the price tags. So if you have the opposition doing something, it's your estimate of where or not, uh, where this price tag is acceptable for you. Where the fact that you have 70% of the population of a very powerful economic hub that are demanding more freedoms and you keep suppressing them and you keep uh, a kind of uh, killing this this very important economic hub economically uh, in terms of the human resource because if oppressed enough they will leave this is going to once again go back to the madurization of the situation if young people in hong kong keep being oppressed then all of this clever and educated people will leave they'll go somewhere right. else but, but so if like, you are you ready hong- are you ready to take this loss that's the calculation for uh, for mainland china are you ready to witness that the deterioration in this place because you want to maintain the firm power or you're ready to do some concessions. This is, I mean, all of the nonviolent struggle is not imagining one big evil force on one hand that wants to impose its evil will and then, you know, it's either game over or you win. It's not a zero-sum game. It is very often in game in in which everybody takes the calculations. If you take a look at the way that China is is uh, tackling some other protests. So there's this thing called protest tracker uh, done by Carnegie Endowment for, for International Peace. And it's really fun because it shows the ways the people protest. It just records protests and the reasons for protests. It's not going into the protest deeply, but it does a great thing. It shows you that, A, uh, despite what you see on the TV, majority of protests are not about human rights and democracy. Actually, very small proportion of protests is about human rights and democracy. Protests across the globe are growing around corruption, bread and butter issues. Recently, of course, handling the COVID. This is now the big peak, but this is a this is a seasonal thing. You know, it's like it, it's related to the pandemic, and a lot of this in, is environment. So, take a look at how China handles huge number of protests around environment and coal plants and and land grabs. It is not the Maduro thing. It is the accommodation thing. So you look at there is a there is a huge number of protests annually happening across China, and a lot of this is about the corruption and the environment. They largely go widely undocumented because of the firewall, because of the censorship. The the regime in Beijing is very effective in keeping the, this inside the pot, but they don't go with a kinetic force against the people who are protesting polluted air. They take a look at it and try to accommodate and then eventually punish a few of their officials on the ground. This is most likely outcome of these scenarios. So if you take a look at at how this entity is is treating generally this kind of things, it seems that they have been, at least in the past, more likely to take a look at the kind of the accommodation scenario than full kinetic force crack down welcome to burma and have a nice day so this is this is a very very interesting dynamics and once again when you take a look at these things you don't want to watch them black and white they are very rarely black and white and they are very rarely decided by one decisive battle this is not the the sprint this is the marathon and once again Perspectives for Hong Kong is is they they depend a lot on where a movement can regroup, but 
rest assured that the place where 70% of the people or 80% of the people believe in change and with whatever type of repression you use on them, the people will either come back or they will leave. There is no way that uh, 70% of the Hong Kongers will wake up tomorrow morning and say, oh, we love one-party system. We were in, 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 in such a denial. Actually, it's great to have a one-party system. We really love our, our local representatives being imposed from, from the outside. We, we were wrong. This is not going to happen. Right, but it seems like, you know, Beijing, the Communist Party no longer cares about Hong Kong's economy. It seems they've shown that, you know, they're willing to, it's because Hong Kong is now only a small part of China's GDP because they've built up cities like, you know, Beijing and, and Shanghai and Tianjin and, and uh, you know, many others, right? And so it looks like they're willing to let Hong Kong just kind of have the brain drain, lose a lot of companies, Beijing's willing to pay that price. So if that's the case, then what can people in Hong Kong do? Because they, they can no longer rely on that that way to fight. Uh, I, I don't know enough to make such an assumption. I, 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 I really don't follow follow that closely, things that are happening in China, to say, oh, they give it up. I, I really don't know. So it's like the question is, if this is the case, then it's a really bad news. Uh, but it doesn't comply with everything else I know about the value that that they put in the economy and about the value they put in. A, there's also this PR factor, you know. If they let it die, they will look like losers. And and they're very sensitive to be to be looking like losers. But once again, this is far beyond my like like you need to speak to somebody who has a far more extensive foreign policy and diplomatic and economic knowledge about what's happening in Beijing. I'm 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 looking into movements. I'm very far from even trying to be a geopolitical expert. Well so one thing you you just kind of mentioned that I thought was very interesting was you can't have a movement based around sort of heady ideas like human rights and democracy. It, it has to be something more visceral. Like it makes me think of, of Milk, who, you know, for years tried to promote homosexual rights, failed. But then he started talking about dog poop in San Francisco and got a lot of people on his side. Uh, this makes all of the sense. First of all, uh, the once again, go back to the, you know, Movement 101 for Dummies. It's not you give up talking about democracy it's, or climate change. Let's talk climate change. It's less slippery. So, okay, we have the climate change, and we all know that there is a climate change. And then we take a look at the map of the people who are there to be mobilized, and we are happy with the number of young people joining, educated people joining, people who read science joining, people who watch news joining. And then you figure out that the largest opponent of the climate change uh, are coming from a rural, non-educated whatsoever. And it's a very similar breakdown in most of the population. So how do you bring farmers into your game climate change? By telling them a story about Amazon woods, they don't know where the Amazon is. By telling them the story about, you know, the concentration of CEO in the atmosphere, that's a language even I don't understand. And I have an MA in biology. By telling them the story about uh, polar bears, they probably haven't seen the polar bear even in zoo. So instead of that, you take a look at a place like Colorado, where I live, Iowa, 
where I've been last week and take a look at how these people live. So you go to rural Colorado, you go to the place which grows cattle, which has farm, you sit down with a person who never left the 5,000 people town, votes regularly Republican, and it's 100% persuaded, persuaded that climate change is a Chinese hoax or whatever QAnon sells to you. And you're asking, how is your life? And he says, recently, crap. Because of the draft, the Colorado is like the most of the Midwest is going to the draft. We are losing a lot of cattle because we need all of these expensive irrigation systems that the small farms cannot afford. So the big players are coming. They're buying off the small farms. The families that lived here for generations had to leave or had to start working in Walmart. They lose their houses. They feel miserable. Well, guess what? Connecting the draft with the climate change is the way to bring these people into the struggle without compromising the common goal, changing the world toward better when it comes to how we treat our planet. So taking, finding what connects constituencies you need to mobilize, sometimes it's a small thing like a dog's poop, and talking to people saying, where they are straight, I'm the person who will curtail you of the dog's poop. Sometimes talking about the draft and the cattle, sometimes Niowa talking about the you know, corn and the herbicides. And like, this is how you turn people that you find traditionally opposed to your ideas being the part of your movement because farmers care about their farms. And guess what? Farms are actually more sensitive to climate change than the high school kids. And when you take a look at this relationship and how you build it, this is how you build a coalition. This is how you build community. This is how you build onwards. And also comes with another... Uh, soccer uh, uh, kind of a, of a relationship. Uh, you win in soccer by controlling the middle field. You win in nonviolent movement by controlling the middle field. So that means you are the one who wants to be mainstream. And you are the one who wants your opponent to be extreme. And guess what? Authoritarians know that. Which is why they portray, you know, LGBT people like luring kids into being gay. For example, they want to push you on a, on, a, on a place where nobody wants to join you. Labeling movements as foreign mercenaries, terrorists, junkies. This is all the attempts of these regimes to keep the middle field and push you on the extreme. Take a look into LGBT movement. It is the moment when they moved from extreme. We are queer and we are here. Take a look at us in our shiny little bathing suits on a gay pride. I'm not really much into looking, you know, hairy butts in the swimming suits. I, however, very much support the quality of the people. And then they start understanding how they open and push them on the, on the, on the radical place in a very distant place. And they say, okay, all these conservatives, what they're talking about, it's a case in Serbia, very homophobic country still. Uh, wherever you look at these right-wing nuts, they're talking about family values. So the moment the LGBT movement understand not only how to pick an issues like dog's poop and things that can relate to the people, but also adopt the language of their opponent and overtake this vision and move more into the mainstream. And the moment they start talking only about, you know, whom they're sleeping with, which is actually a very private thing that, you know, I, I, I don't go around and tell people that I sleep with women. This is not how I define my identity. Instead of that, the geniosity, ingenuity of understanding 
that in order to win the middle field, you need to beat the message. So now, instead of, of, of uh, uh, leaving this part of the battlefield to the conservatives, they say, okay, family values. We are all about family values. If I live with my loved one, with my beloved husband, in my case, for 10 years, and I die, how come that person cannot inherit my car or my apartment? If I live with my beloved husband in healthy community, we earn enough money and we have a nice household, how come we cannot adopt the kids and you can adopt the kids? We want to adopt the kids because we want family values. That's the moment of ingenuity of the LGBT movement when they start winning. And this is exactly how the movements cleverly overtake the, the middle ground. If I'm hit by the car, how come that it is not my husband who are the first one to visit me in the hospital? I'm all about family values. And now if you are trying to deny that right to me only because we are two men or two women living in this household, that puts you on the extreme and that puts me in the center of the family values. So this is how this game is played by understanding that you need to win the middle ground because this is where the numbers are. And when you take a look at the common spectator of this discussion, let's say one of you is listening to this discussion, you'd say yes, but it really makes sense. You know, how come that man and woman can live in marriage for 10 years and immediately, you know, one dies and, you know, the other inherits whatever was the was the family property. And if two women live together for 10 years and in a in a loved relationship and one dies, the other one can't inherit. That doesn't make sense. So you know it's like you understand how overtaking this thing is not only about picking the small things. That's more of a tactical thing. Very recommended though. It's understanding where your opponent stands on this on this uh, uh, this uh, more of the visionary slash value spectrum and getting in the middle of this spectrum and overtaking the spectrum and making it your spectrum. And this is this is why LGBT movement will win and should win, because we should all be equal. Yeah, it just seems to me that um, fighting a revolution, at least how you described, is very different from how I think a lot of people who have never done anything like this before would think about it. It's like, you train a lot of activists. Do you ever have a challenge in like convincing them that these tactics, these strategies work? Oh, uh, uh, the, the thing that Canvas does is never convincing people. It's like, this is not our job to tell people what to do. Uh, there is a simple reason for this. Uh, foreigners can give you only the wrong advice. <laughs> uh, it also comes with a, with, a, with, a, with a little bit of my personal fishing philosophy. I can catch a fish for you. I want to teach you how to fish. And by going through the toolbox, which is the specifics of Canvas teachings, which allows you to understand and map your own community, which allows you to craft the vision of tomorrow and find things like family values by yourself, which are, or, or farms or draft, which allows you to map your own pillars by yourself which guides you to understanding that your strategy is targeting one pillar after another from your own map, and which allows you to take a look at the tactics and take a look at how, how, what is the cost of the tactic, risk of the tactic, gain of the tactic, 
and how to evaluate you, that puts you in a very good place to make your own plan, to make your own strategy, to pick your own tactics, and of course, to fail and learn on your own mistakes. So rather than persuading people that this is the right way, you give people cases where it worked or didn't work in the past. You ask people questions, like the one I ask, okay, 14 days, beautiful. Let's occupy the whole Hong Kong. But you know, there will be a day 14, and inevitably the sun will rise the day 17. And what the heck you do if your opponent ignores you? I'm not telling you don't do this. I'm just telling you before you do this, think that sun will rise at the day 70. Inevitably, it's going to happen. So what if? So teaching people how to think critically and apply these tools is actually the best thing that you can equip them because a lot of these people are smarter than you. All of them know their own situation better than you do. So, you know, giving them, this is once again, you don't try to copy paste your system. Otherwise you end in Iraq in a place where, where you have a parliament and a government, but you're very far from stable society and democracy. Instead of that, you teach these people that, you know, this is what you need to do when you evaluate your tactics. This is what you need to do when you're building your strategy. This is what you need to do when, before you go to the road, you need to map the road and things of that kind. And then, then people, then you hope that people will figure it out themselves. And a lot of them figure it out themselves because a lot of them are, are smarter and braver and more committed and operating in more risky environment or even far more hilarious than any of us in Canvas can ever be. Well, so for anyone watching, uh, where where should they go to learn more about you or learn about some of these uh, strategies that they can implement in their countries? There are great resources. Of course, our website, www.canvasopedia.org, is a place where you can find uh, free manuals in several languages. You can find the complete curriculum that we teach. Uh, published as a as a handbook. Uh, also, uh, there you can find a really cool ten short videos. We think the videos help in the world where where people are more likely to watch videos. They are animated, so they're even funny about the things like vision and unity and pillars, like you know, to in, in introduce yourself to the main concepts. There is, however, a wide array of great books that you can read. Uh, not starting with Blueprint for Revolution that we just named, it's just the, the funny one. You want to take a look at how dictators learn. You would re read the Dictators Learning Curve, which tells about the story of what China learned, for example, from Arab Spring, what Russia learned from Arab Spring. It's written by Will Dobson. It's a great book. You want to read all of, if you want to operate in the new post-truth reality, you want to read Peter Pomerantsev. Nothing's real and everything is possible, and this is not a propaganda. If you want to learn why the largest threat to democracy is actually coming from democracies and how the majority of democracy decay is launched by what we call a liberal democracy trend, people like Erdogan and Orban and you know all of these guys, Duterte, Bolsonaro, you'll read How Democracy Dies by William Ziblatt. So there is a plenty of stuff around. You can read Gene Sharp, of course, and he's kind of the master of this knowledge. Uh, but more of all, uh, keep up the faith. Uh, there has been many cases uh, in our history, and a lot of the, the modern rights are won by the small group of dedicated people doing it right, building it from the scratch, 
moving into popular movement and inevitably win. It's doable. It has been done many things. Our opponents have grown more knowledgeable and more skilled to contain it. But that's just another challenge which makes things even more sexy. So get involved in activism. It, it pays back and changes your life for better. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was very informative. Good to talk to you. All right. So right now I'm kicking myself because I, re I remembered in his book, I thought he, there was a story about pigs. It was a story about turkeys. Yes. Well, he did say that it was turkeys. Yeah. And that's so. Uh, well, so anyways, let me tell that story because it's really interesting and you should you should get his book. It's very interesting. But so basically what they did was they got a bunch of turkeys and put white ribbons on them. Flowers. So, yeah, flowers. Uh, Slobodan Milosevic's wife, a uh, horrible person, always wore that. And so they put it on turkeys because in the Serbian language, turkey is like the worst thing you can call a woman. And then they released them into like the, the city center. And, you know, so that's obviously like, you know, a swipe at the dictator or whatever. But the, the, the point that was so interesting about how humor is such an effective tool against dictators is that what happened was you had the, you know, the brutal, thuggish, scary policemen running around trying to catch these turkeys and people laughed at them. I mean, like, that was what he calls a dilemma action, right? Like, what do they do? Do they let the turkeys run around? They got to they... arrest the turkeys. <laughs> exactly. But that's really important because when you can take, you know, the dictator wants you to fear their police force or military. And when you start laughing at them. Oh, yeah, it's the worst thing. Yeah, that's a very powerful tool. So that's why I wanted him to tell the story about turkeys. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just did. So it still made it on the podcast. It still made it on the podcast. The book's very interesting. I recommend it. Yeah, uh, we forgot to ask him how to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party. You know, if we had only just asked him directly, we would have had the answer and the Chinese Communist Party would be overthrown within the month. Yeah, yeah, I think the answer would be we should tell him how to overthrow the Chinese Communist Party after well, doing no, the, our research. The, the, the Chinese know? people yeah, would and, how to do that. Well, like, you know, you ask that, then, like, basically, you have to do homework now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know, homework. But it is interesting because, like, like how he's talking about like all the environmental protests that happen in China. It's it it is it's probably like the revolution in China probably will not be sparked with like people like standing up for human rights. There's got to be like those tangible things. Well, if you even if you look back at the 1989 like student democracy protest yeah. in Tiananmen Square, right? Like it started out as uh kind of like an anti-corruption protest. Like it was about wanting the government to reform. It was not about like overthrowing the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. It kind of eventually got to the place where they were calling for democracy. But in the beginning, it was kind of like the country, because the country was going through economic reforms and they were like, we also want, um, you know, government reforms, essentially. Well, even more specifically, it began because uh, an official that was actually beloved by the people because he was kind of a reformer died. There was supposed to be just like, you know, a really small memorial service for him. Well, but he then, had already been disgraced before he died, yeah. essentially. So, yeah, yeah. The, the party did not want a big showing for him. But people loved him, so people came out to commemorate him and his efforts to fight corruption. You know, one thing leads to another. Yeah, and then, like, the students came out because he, the students especially felt like a connection with uh, Hu Yaobang. And then, like, it kind of 
it snowballed, right? Because the students kept marching and protesting and staying in the square. And then, um, like, then you had people coming out to support the students. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting thing you also saw in Hong Kong, where a lot of the, you know, the initial um, protests uh, in 2014 and even prior to 2014, a lot of them were like student protests. And then when in 2014, kind of the umbrella movement got started when students were protesting and got tear gassed. Yeah, a lot of people like wanted to defend the students. And then that had never happened before in Hong Kong. So, you know, that was the thing that started people occupying uh, like different parts of the city. So it's it's interesting to see like the motivation and what Sergio was talking about was the when you get the mainstream right mm -hmm. on your side. And for Hong Kong, it worked because, you know, by June 2019, there were that march with two million people, which is like a quarter of the city. So. Yeah, well, we talked to people, you know, like Fathers Berlag, like Popovich said, bringing his family with mm -hmm. them, like little kids in strollers. But it, but it did decrease the size of the protests as the police tactics became more brutal, more tear gas, more pepper spray, mm -hmm. uh, more rubber bullets. You know, I'm not going to you know, take kids to a protest with rubber bullets, but I'll take the two, you know. Uh, yeah, what often so, happened was the begin there would be a big protest. And then after the main protest, essentially the police would start firing tear gas or whatever to the people who were still there, who are often like the younger people, right? Right, yeah. And we also saw like uh, Pofa just was talking about how they're like the more extreme wing was very aggressive towards the police. Not obviously in the way that the police were returning the aggression, but Even, they were not like trying to make friends. Like this is aggressive for Hong Kong, which mm -hmm. is like less violent than any. It's less violent than, than the U.S. protests. Yeah, like almost police, any yeah. protest that you yeah. see in the U.S. So it was, they in most cases, there weren't like direct confrontations, but there was like a lot of- Like spray painting yeah. the police HQ. Yeah. Like so, there was, I mean, not violence definitely by- American standards. But. but but like, yeah, it definitely became a different, because I remember in 2014, people were just proud of how civilized they were as protesters. They you know? started like their own recycling program. Yeah, like you'd go to the Occupy like areas and they would be like, ah, oh, yes. Like people kept trying to show me the women's restroom because they were occupying this area where like there were public restrooms in this uh, nearby park. And people would be like, look, like people like donated beauty products and like hand soaps and like, you know, like perfume to put in the women's restroom and people kept showing that to journalists being like look at like you know like we, we've we've got this like beautiful restroom and we're cleaning the restrooms and like you know as as an example of like here remember like the students studying yeah they made a place for students to to do their homework and study yeah you can't if you're going to protest you still can't get away from studying yeah but what what they i noticed a big difference between 2014 and 2019 is in 2014, right, they occupied, you know, Central, right? They occupied that that main, like, freeway that basically goes through downtown Hong Kong for, what was it, 79 days or something, right? In, in 2019, uh, they didn't occupy it at all, except uh, we saw many times for, like, a few hours, suddenly they completely blocked traffic, completely occupied the whole thing, and then later dispersed. Right, so they figured out how to change it from this draining long-term occupation to actually we can occupy this any time we want, mm -hmm. and right? we'll just and, leave, and then, and we'll then come just back. leave, right? Yeah. And so that was more powerful, and that's you know like what Sergio was talking about the, the the Maldives, right? You you have a protest and you leave before things can get bad, 
right? So, but but that actually shows an even greater power of the movement to be able to mobilize people. And I think that was one of the many things that terrified Beijing. Yeah. I mean, I hope people in China are like taking a look at some of these uh, materials that like Canvas has put out to, you know, learn ways to tackle a regime like the Chinese Communist Party. You might want to be using a VPN. <laughs> yes, that's a very I good mean, idea. I mean, I think probably you'd have to be, yeah. I mean, yes. we can check, but I would be surprised if it wasn't blocked in China. Chris, I think you can recommend a VPN. That's true. But then this would just be a goodwill recommendation. Yeah, Surfshark. Yeah, Surfshark actually, just to their credit, that they're not sponsoring this episode, they did actually sponsor us, not only for the last like two and a half years at least, but also they sponsored a bunch of the stuff that we had done to help fund our Hong Kong trip in 2019. That's true. So, That's true. So appreciate that. Yeah. Well, anyways, I would love to hear what you guys think about some of the things that were discussed in this podcast. Uh, and, you know, social media is a powerful tool that people can discuss ideas for how to use these kind of tactics, what kind of tactics would work, uh, ways to create st- groups, organizations. I, th- I find this all very, very fascinating. Social media is also a very powerful tool to criticize your friends and neighbors. Well, thank you for ending us on a great, hopeful note, Matt. <laughs> That's why you keep me on. We still haven't gotten that spray bottle, have we? <laughs> Once again, this was China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly Zhang. And at least for now, I'm Matt Ganesta. What does that mean? It means I don't know how long you're going to keep me on the show, Chris. You're the producer. I don't know that we could get, get take you off the show. That's excellent. <laughs> Wait, All Chris, right. we have to organize a social movement to overthrow our dictator. That's right. But I I can also learn from Blueprint for Revolution and understand what you're going to do. No, you should read How Dictators Learn. Actually, that's better. Yeah, the dictator learning curve or whatever. Yeah. Uh Uh, (laughs) Uh-huh. Okay, that's that's my next read. (laughs) Goodbye.